Well, thanks, Nev, for that introduction. And thanks to Connor and Jessica and Emily as well for your report from Missions Week. I know it was always uh, very beneficial to me when I was at Queen's, so good to know that it's still going strong. So I wonder what you, hear, what you think of when you hear the word blessing. Maybe you think of the phrase, a blessing in disguise, and you're reminded of a time when something came along that at first seemed to be a hindrance, but actually turned out to be a great help. Maybe you think of someone who seems to have it all, power and wealth that they haven't worked for, but they've just been blessed with it. Maybe you're reminded of some of the words of the hymns that we've just been singing. But for me, the word blessing firstly reminds me of Haribo gummy bears. I see some confused faces, but bear with me. When I was a kid, uh, the shop down the road from my school had these boxes of Haribo sweets at the till, and they would let you buy individual sweets for 1p each. And on the rare occasion that I could convince my dad to give me some pocket money when he dropped me off for school, I would always view how much money he gave me in terms of how many gummy bears it would buy me. A mere one pound from my dad meant a hundred gummy bears for me. And to my 12-year-old brain, that was an incredible exchange rate, and I was able to be greatly blessed through the generosity of my Father. And we worship an Almighty Father who loves to bless and give good gifts to His children, blessings that are so much greater than pound coins and haribos. He gives us eternal life through salvation. He gives us guidance and counsel in difficult times. He gives us fruit from our outreach as a church. He gives us unity with our brothers and sisters, and he gives, her, gives us a under, greater understanding of who the God we worship is. These are just some of the blessings that the Lord gives us, and we're going to think about some of those this evening, but we're going to look at them through the lens of priorities that we should have as a church and as individuals that will result in receiving these blessings from the Lord. We're going to see how focused building up of the church saturating unity of believers and continual worship of the Lord will result in the Lord being our blessing. We come to the final three Psalms that are labeled as songs of ascent. As we've seen previously in this series, there's evidence to suggest that these songs have been arranged in a very specific order, a carefully curated playlist for the journey to Jerusalem for the festivals of Passover, weeks, and booths. And if the order is important, then these three would be the songs that the Israelites would be singing on the last leg of their journey as they approach the holy city. And as we'll see, each of these psalms talks about the Lord being our blessing and highlights a priority that we should all have in order to receive this blessing. So let's begin with Psalm 132, which gives us the first priority that we should have and that is the focused building up of the church. Let's read the psalm together. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephratha. We found it in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. 
Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her with provisions. I will satisfy her purr with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Perhaps the temple of God perched upon Mount Zion comes into view in the distance as the pilgrims start to sing the first few bars of Psalm 132. They take the time to remember the building of the temple, the choosing of the place where it would be built. They remember King David and all the hardships he endured to make sure that he found a suitable dwelling place for the Lord. Perhaps they look down at their children as they sing these words, using the psalm as both praise and a history lesson. They remember how David swore an oath that he would not rest until there was somewhere for the Lord to dwell. And to me, it almost sounds like something out of a Liam Neeson movie, where he vows that he won't rest until he's tracked down his enemies and made them pay for what they've done to his family. Doesn't it almost seem in comparison like David is being a little bit melodramatic here? Surely this isn't something he has to lose sleep over. It's not massively time sensitive. There's no danger. There isn't that much on the line if he doesn't get the temple built right now. But we see just how seriously David is taking his role as God's chosen king. He considers it of the utmost importance that the Israelites have a static, grounded, permanent place to encounter God, and that God has a place to dwell that is suitable and honoring to him. It takes priority over all else. And in return to this vow of service, the Lord gives an oath of his own in verses 11 and 12. He promises that if David's sons keep his covenant and continue to honor him as David has, then they will sit on the same throne that David currently occupies, as will their sons. Before long, David's son Solomon succeeds him as king, and he's the one that actually ends up building the temple in Jerusalem, not David. And we'll come back to the significance of that a little bit later on. But we know that many generations later in David's line, there would come one who would sit on the throne forever. His death would not end his reign because his death could not hold him. And he sits on the throne today as our King of Kings. Jesus Christ is the new and better David, the new and better Solomon, the new and better King. So going back to this oath that the Lord gives, we see the blessings that come from him having a place to dwell. The priests are clothed with salvation and righteousness. The saints shout for joy. The Lord does not turn his face away. He blesses the people with provisions and he satisfies the poor with bread. He clothes the nation's enemies with shame and defeat and he causes the king's crown to shine. 
there is a clear correlation between the building up of the Lord's house and the Lord pouring out blessing on his people. So we see that the festival-going Israelites would have been considering these things as they went to worship the Lord. But what does it mean for us today? We have a church building already built. We make our pilgrimage to it every week, perhaps even a few times a week. Are we supposed to stop and think long and hard about the work that the architects and the builders did as they built this building? Well, no. Instead of the physical building, we are to consider the spiritual building up of the church. David's determination and focus on giving the Lord a place to dwell and commune with his chosen people points to our continued need to focus on building up the church today. But what does it mean to build up our church? Well, it's anything that sets the church on a heavenward trajectory. We want the church to build up in numbers, not for our glory, but for God's. We want the church to build up in faith, not for our glory, but for God's. We want the church to build up in spiritual maturity, not for our glory, but for God's. But this is no excuse for the individual to sit back and let the church body get on with the building. As Paul says in his first letter to the Corinthians, one body has many parts, and each part is required to do its, its, its assigned job. So what can you do practically to build up your church? Well, how about starting a ministry or supporting existing ministries that cater to the demographics both within the church and in the surrounding area? Commit to praying for one of these ministries every day, and the church has helpfully created prayer guides for this very purpose. Invite your neighbor to a craft fair in the church or your work colleague to the men's weekend. Offer to speak to the young people about a mission trip, trip that you went on and encourage them to pray about whether that's a way that they could serve the Lord. Ask to be added to the ruta for preparing the bread and wine for the breaking of bread service. Offer to babysit for a young couple to allow them to attend a marriage course in the church. Go to your committee meetings with keenness and enthusiasm instead of dread and lethargy. Make an effort to speak to someone you've never spoken to after the service each week. Send a message of encouragement to the young person who took part in the service for the first time. Make contact with the Islamic center that's just opened across the road to welcome them into the community and build relationships that may lead to their salvation. These are the everyday ways in which we are called to build up our church, to make the gospel known in this city, to make this a place brimming with the love and kindness of our Lord, to point us heavenward and to glorify the one who dwells here with us. We see in this psalm how focused and determined David was. What could our church look like if every member had that same passion and resolve to build it up? Now, we saw in verses 11 and 12 that God promised blessing and power for David's sons. And we know from 1 Kings that David's son Solomon was the one who actually built the temple that the Lord had ordained by which point David had died. But in 1 Chronicles 28, we see David give his son Solomon the blueprints for the temple, containing intricate detail about every room and decoration. David prepares the way for the temple under the instruction and guidance of God, but it is someone later down the line who actually builds it. The word legacy 
has been defined as planting seeds in a garden you never get to see. As members of the church body, we may be called to plant seeds that we never get to see grow into full bloom. But the planting is still important and necessary to pave the way. Perhaps you feel a real calling to start a ministry in the church that focuses on a particular community in an area near the church. You put all your time and effort into organizing events aimed at these people, but only one or two turn up each time. Maybe nobody comes at all. But the seeds have been planted. The people in that community now know who you are, and they know the name of the church you come from. Then fast forward a year, five years, ten years, and you've moved on to another church or another community, and this is now the most thriving community and ministry of the church. The community has welcomed the church over time, and people have come to faith through it because you committed to the work when there was little to know for it. The seeds don't bloom immediately, and we may never see the garden in all its glory, but it will grow. Think of the Lord Jesus' ministry here on earth. He never physically saw the churches of Ephesus or Corinth or Thessalonica, but he began the ministry and paved the way for the spread of the gospel across Asia and Europe and ultimately the world. He trusted in his Father and focused on the work of building up the church, knowing the blessing that would come from it. The next priority is found in Psalm 133. And that is the saturating unity of believers. Let's read the psalm. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down the beard on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. This psalm was written by David himself, and it speaks of the beauty of unity between brothers. Now, in a church context, we probably read this as spiritual brothers and sisters, but perhaps it took on a more literal meaning for David as he wrote it. His son Absalom had his brother Amnon killed after a bitter two-year grudge. And after David's death, there was further conflicts between his sons Solomon and Adonijah. I'm sure David often longed for his sons to see eye to eye, to put aside their differences, and to dwell in unity with each other. Now, notice how David doesn't say that unity is important because it's the best way to get things done, although from a practical standpoint, it is. But he says that it is good and pleasant. Above any logistical reason for it, Unity is important, first and foremost, because it is pleasing to the Lord. Verse 3 says that the Lord has commanded the blessing. So unity here is both the priority and the blessing. The Lord commands it because he knows that it will bless those who strive for it. David uses two images here to drive home just how vital unity is. The first is the precious oil that was used to anoint Aaron as high priest. The oil was an artisanal blend of perfumes and spices and was treated as holy and sacred. 
Exodus 30 details the recipe and specifically states that this mixture must not be used for any purpose other than consecration. It wasn't a trivial thing to be anointed with this oil. It was a sign that those being inducted into priesthood had special responsibilities and had been chosen by the Lord. The flowing of the oil down Aaron's robes is a picture of how easily flowing and abundant unity is to be. For David to liken this sacred ceremony to unity between believers shows just how seriously God takes it. The second image is that of dew on Mount Hermon, which was a mountain that represented the northern border of the promised land. It was known for heavy precipitation in an otherwise dry and arid landscape. The dew that condensed at the summit would seep into the rock, creating springs that became tributaries that flowed down the mountain and eventually merged into the mighty River Jordan that flowed throughout Israel. The dew on top of Mount Hermon was an integral part of the ancient Israeli ecosystem. It was crucial for a fruitful land in the dry season. What then is David saying about the importance of unity when he compares it to Hermon's dew? When the church suffers a dry season, unity is the dew that irrigates the land. It saturates the soil and invigorates it with nutrients and moisture, everything that it needs to produce a bumper crop. When you come to worship the Lord, do you allow the blessing of unity to saturate your heart? Do you come with an attitude of genuine love, determined to put aside your pride and to get along with your brothers and sisters? Most disunity between believers isn't in big public fallouts or church-threatening theological disagreements, but it's in the little things, the ways we've become desensitized to, the seemingly low-impact stuff. When you walk into church, do you sit down in the pew hoping that that one person doesn't come and sit next to you? Do you look for the person with whom you know you can have a good rant about how a particular ministry is run after the service? Do you keep an eye on that person who sometimes says some strange stuff so you can have a good laugh about it later around the dinner table? Is unity saturating your life? Or are you just getting by on general niceties and togetherness? There is active unity and active disunity, but I think most of us fall into a middle ground, a neutral lack of either. If this is the attitude of believers, then the church will stagnate and won't progress. Glory is not brought to God, and he does not bless us. This was the warning to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3. The Lord says to them, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The safe and easy middle ground does not please or honor God. Resolve tonight to take action to saturate your life with unity. The last line of this psalm reminds us of the ultimate blessing that the Lord gives life forevermore. One day we will have eternal life alongside our brothers and sisters and we will be perfectly united with them. Preemptively prepare for that by allowing unity to guide how you behave here on earth. Allow the anticipation of heavenly blessing to influence your earthly actions.
Let the unity between brothers and sisters saturate your life and the Lord will bless you. The final priority found in these Psalms is the continual worship of the Lord. And we see this in Psalm 134. This short song says, Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Perhaps, like me, the first question you have when you read this psalm is, how do we bless the Lord? We've been thinking about it the other way around so far. He blesses us. He gives us blessings. It was a phrase used in some of the hymns that we sang this evening, and maybe it doesn't really mean anything to you anymore. You're just used to it. What blessings could we possibly give him? Well, in this context, the the word carries the weight of kneeling before the Lord, praising him, worshiping him. We bless him through our glorification of him. When we seek blessing from the Lord, there is an implication of reliance on him. We need him to bless us. But when we bless the Lord, there isn't that same reliance. God doesn't need us to bless him. We can't add to his already infinite blessing but it is to acknowledge that infinite blessing in an act of adoration. While this psalm is included in the collection of songs that would have been sung on the way to Jerusalem, it is generally assumed that it also would have been sung at the end of a worship service during these three festivals as the congregation was leaving the temple. And the way the psalm is structured is we have a call to worship in verses one and two, and then we have a response in verse three. Now, you might have noticed a discrepancy there. Why would there be a call to worship at the end of a service when everyone's filing out the door? Well, this is the point of this psalm. The worship of the Lord doesn't end when the service ends. The call to worship is from the congregation to the Levite priests, the servants of the Lord who stand by watch in night, who stand watch by night in the house of the Lord. The congregation encourages the priests to keep going in their service to God, filling it with praise. As the pilgrims make their journey homeward, another festival season coming to an end, they take comfort in knowing that they're being represented in the Lord's house by the faithful servants who stay there. But the people aren't giving the priests a new command here. This isn't new information to them. The priests know the importance of continual worship. But perhaps when their nine to five is constant temple service, it can become routine and pedestrian. Maybe they carry out their duties well, but they're just going through the motions. The people here are reminding them that their service should be filled with worship. Perhaps your church service has become pedestrian. Maybe you've served in the same ministry for a number of years now, And you don't really have a good reason to step down, so you reluctantly turn up each week, determined to just get through it so you can go home and relax. Maybe the joy and enthusiasm you once had for the work just isn't there anymore. Perhaps it's time to refocus on who the work is for. 
when we realize that it isn't for our own enjoyment or credit or recognition, but that it is for the glorification and honoring of the Lord, then we will be encouraged to serve continually with praise and worship, to bless the Lord in all we do. But this doesn't only apply to service within the church. When the congregation in this psalm encourages the priests to lift up their hands to the holy place and bless the Lord, they aren't assuming that they will do all the worshiping for them, that they can go home and sit back and take it easy, knowing that someone else is blessing the Lord on their behalf. As they leave the temple singing these words, they're also reminding themselves that worship is to be continual. The priests will carry on blessing and worshiping the Lord as they go about their temple duties, but the congregants are to do the same wherever they are. The onus of worship does not fall away when you walk out that door this evening. It should constantly be at the forefront of our minds, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, not two hours a day, one day a week. And this isn't an easy calling. By nature, we are creatures who get easily distracted and forget the things that we resolve to do almost instantly. So here are a couple of ways that might be useful to get yourself into a routine and a mindset of continual worship. Set alerts on your phone to remind you to pray about specific things throughout the day. Set aside time with your family each evening to read the Bible together. Turn the radio off for a couple of minutes on your commute to take in the world that the Creator has given us stewardship over. Take some time away from that hobby that's dangerously close to becoming an obsession and reallocate that time to studying and storing up the word in your heart. Use the gifts the Lord has given you to honor him in your work. Act in a way that allows others to see Christ reflected in you. Let people know that when you pray for them, let people know when you pray for them, that they may be encouraged as well as reminded that they too will benefit from communing with their father. At various points throughout your day, stop and ask yourself, am I worshiping the Lord right now? So this call to worship shows us that our worship is to be continual, but what is the response given by the priests? Verse three says, may the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. The natural result of a life of continual worship is blessing from Zion. The word you here is not a plural you or a general you directed at anyone and everyone. It is a singular, individual, pointing the finger, you. The creator of the universe, he who made heaven and earth, wants to bless you. Think of the difference in scale there. The incredible, almighty, all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful Lord of the universe laser focuses his blessing directly on you. Not a general aura of blessing that whoever wanders into it benefits from, but bespoke, tailor-made blessing crafted specially for you. We shouldn't worship just to get something back from it, but what a reward this is. If you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord, who he is or what he has done for you, 
I pray that this psalm would shed some light on the kind of God that we worship. He isn't distant. He doesn't offer just a general love, but he is your father and he cares about you. No matter who you are, what you've done, what your background is. The creator of the universe cares about everyone he has created in spite of all our sin. He cares so much that he sent his son to become one of us, to take the burden of sin on himself, though he was completely undeserving, to hang on a cross and die, then rise again three three days later. This is the God we serve. How can we offer him anything less than constant praise? The Lord heaps blessing on those who fill their days with worship. So, we've seen what priorities our church and we as individuals should have if we are to receive blessing from our Lord. Our actions and our attitudes matter. Focused building up of the church will result in blessing. Saturating unity of believers will result in blessing and continual worship of the Lord will result in blessing. If we have these priorities, then the Lord will be our blessing. He loves to reward us. The Father loves to give good gifts to his children. This concludes our series in the Psalms of Ascent. We've seen that the Lord is our keeper, our protection, our restoration, our hope, and our blessing. In the same way that these psalms brought hope and stability to those making their way to Jerusalem, we pray as a church that they will bring hope and stability to your life in knowing who the Lord we worship is. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you care about us and love us so much in spite of our sin, all the things we do that displease you, all the ways in which we turn our backs on you. We thank you that you care so much that you would send your son to die for us, to give us a way out, even though we are completely undeserving. Lord, we ask you would help us in the ways that we are falling short. Point them out to us, help us to overcome them, help us to focus our eyes on you. And Lord, we ask that you would pour out your blessings on us. We ask that you would help us prioritize the building up of the church, unity amongst ourselves, and help us to worship you continually in everything we do. We pray all these things in your name, Lord. Amen.